Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Gabriella. Um, hi, I'm Gabriella. I'm a compulsive reader and bulimic and a whole bunch of many other uh, addictions, many other things. Um, I'm going to put a timer here just so that I can time myself so I don't stay in what it was like for too long. Um, All right, so I wrote a whole bunch of little notes. I don't know if I'll ever get to them. But in doing this, um, it it was only for my wanting to to get the message across of how extraordinarily life-changing this program is and how until I came here, I actually didn't realize... Um, the depth of the suffering that I was creating for myself and my loved ones. Um, So just to start out with what it was like, um, I grew up here in Los Angeles. I grew up actually up in Topanga Canyon. Um, Had a family of um, alcoholic family. My stepfather was um, pretty violent and um, very inappropriate in a lot of ways. And my mom was an Al-Anon. She made everything look okay. And it was our job as children to be quiet. We were the children who needed to be, uh, you know, seen and not heard and sometimes not even seen. Um, and in doing so, I developed a lot of coping mechanisms. And those coping mechanisms started out with overeating. It started out with being in fantasy. It started out with things like uh, making up stories of how I was going to... Um, you know, somehow get myself out of Topanga and out of this life and out of this world and everything was going to be okay if I got this, that, and the other thing. If I was famous, if I got wealthy, if I, you know, moved to another country, whatever it was. And some of them were really like childlike fantasies, like if I got superpowers, if I could be invisible, you know, all of those things. But they developed into other kind of um, stories. And... With the kind of, and I'm sure there's so many people who have had childhood like mine, some worse, some better, whatever, but it, there isn't, and for me, I don't think that anybody's suffering is any greater or less than mine. I just think we all experience our own suffering, and it's just as important and just as, um, you know, tra- traumatic regardless of whether or not you were in an alcoholic home or not, or regardless of whether or not you were abused or or whatever it was. Um, So one of the things that that I can remember really early on is um, my mom really got involved with the church, um, a church up in Topanga Canyon, and we all were going to go to a um, pool party. And the pool party, they had an all-you-can-eat ice cream sundae extravaganza. And um, I was seven, and I already didn't feel comfortable in a bathing suit. I already didn't want to go. I did not want to be a part of this 
of this group, and my mom made me go. Um, and I kept going back to the ice cream sundae thing and keep filling up. I think I went back like three or four times. I mean, I stuffed myself when I was a little boy. And he would keep, you know, I would coax him to come back with me to go get the food. But he never got more. He had one serving, and I was having four. And I could not understand at that time, at seven, how anybody could have one serving of ice cream. (laughs) How was that possible? It was astounding to me, right? Floored. And that's how, that's one of the early memories. Another early memory is going to our neighbor's house. And people didn't lock their doors in our house, you know, or where I grew up. You left your keys in the car. You didn't lock the door. People would go away for weeks. The doors were open. Well, I would always go to the neighbor's house, and I would convince my girlfriends to go with me who were spending the night, and we would steal their ice cream. And I didn't find out till years later that my parents started this neighborhood watch because apparently <laughs> there were homeless people going into people's houses eating their food. (laughs) That was me. It was me with all of my kid friends going to all of the neighbors' houses and stealing their food because my mom didn't have sugar in the house. Right? So, here we go. That's how it started. Many years later, I developed alcoholism, and the alcoholism was a whole other way of using, because what happened is at 14, I started really gaining weight. And, or actually even before that. And um, and I was already at 11 or 12 starting to manage and control my food, starting to go on diets, starting to exercise more. I became a horseback rider. That was one of the things that I really got into and into Panga Canyon. It was kind of easy. I worked on a farm at 15. Um, and that was one of the ways that I would exercise is I'd ride a lot of horses um, or we'd go hiking. But I started to... Um, it, no matter what I was doing at the time, it wasn't enough for me to get to the idea of what I thought the weight should be, whatever that was, whatever the number was. And at 14, one of my best girlfriends, her sister came to visit, and she was anorexic and bulimic, and she showed me how to throw up. And I thought that was amazing. I thought that was the answer to everything, because all of a sudden, I could eat to, like, you know, to just to my heart's content, which was never enough. And then I could throw up and never gain a pound or at least lose the stuff that I had already gained. Well, I did lose some weight. And my friend caught me and she said, oh, my God, please don't do this. Because her sister was in treatment, in and out of treatment for anorexia and bulimia. And she couldn't stop. And she was dying. But I couldn't see that. All I could see was that she was thin. Mm. And to me, that was the utmost, right? That's, that was okay. Like, if you were thin, you had it together. And I, it, she was right. I never stopped. That was at 14. It was 28 years of bulimia and anorexia and over-exercising and restricting and diets um, and anything else that I could get into my body in order not to feel in order not to sit with the discomfort that was going on, um, in order to, I, I couldn't tolerate discomfort. I couldn't tolerate the anxiety that I had. I didn't even know I had anxiety. I couldn't tolerate other people's feelings, my family being unhappy. I couldn't tolerate the, you know, alcoholism that was going on in my home. 
Um, I couldn't tolerate the racism that was going on up in Topanga Canyon. Um, I couldn't tolerate all of the very many things that were going on um, as a child, and I used food to stuff all the feelings, and then I would throw them up because then I couldn't tolerate myself because once I had eaten the food, I would start to then think about how horrible I was and how much I had done, and now I'm going to gain weight, and oh my God, that's horrible. And in all of that, all of those thoughts, all of those stories were enough to me to become repeatedly violent, this repeatedly violent act of throwing up or over-exercising. And once I started, I couldn't stop. So there was that. Um, And again, as I said, I developed alcoholism, and alcoholism, I, God, I don't think I got, I got sober in 2007. Um, And the reason that I'm saying this is because I've been in in the rooms, I've been in the rooms for about 13 or 14 years. I've been in the rooms for a long time, and I could not get sober. It took me two and a half years to get sober, and I would stand up at 26 and Broadway and go up to the podium and take a newcomer chip every day. And I had commitments, and I had a sponsor, and I, you know, my girlfriend, when she ran out of chips, would call me up and say, hey, I ran out of new kind of chips. Can you bring some? <laughs> and that's because I had a whole box. My, I had, like, my top drawer was newcomer chips, right? And I would bring them. Um, but I couldn't get sober, and I couldn't get sober because my sponsor at the time wanted me to get 30 days, and I couldn't get 30 days. And eventually what happened was... I got a different sponsor, and that sponsor said, you're making the choice. Just because your husband keeps bringing alcohol home doesn't mean you have to drink it. Now, seven and a half years in, I'm still throwing up. I'm still exercising. I'm still self-harming with food and exercise and bulimia. I'm still following the story that somehow when I get to the ideal weight, that that's going to help. And never mind that I, I never got to... I never put it together that when I did get to that number on the scale, right, I wasn't happy. I was miserable. And when I got to that number on the scale, the number, the magic number would move and it would change. And no longer was it 120. It was 115 and then it was 110 and then it was 105 and then it was 100 and then it's below 100 and then it's, you know, 90 and I got down to 85 and that wasn't good enough. None of it was good enough, and I was the most miserable I could be. Um, my husband had people coming up to him and telling him that I, that I needed to get help, and I couldn't see it. And, of course, well into my sobriety, I'm saying that I'm okay, and my sponsor is telling me what I need to do, and there's the denial. Okay, so here I'm going to talk about the disease. This is what I've learned about the disease. There is a couple of components in the disease that I wasn't willing to look at. One is denial, and the other one is shame. So I was in full-on denial seven and a half years into recovery in the other program with sponsees and going to meetings and working the steps and knowing the traditions and the whole thing, right? And I'm still using But I'm using food, or I'm using managing controlling, or I'm using something else. And... And I didn't want to look at it. That was my denial. And I also didn't want to go to the rooms, which had saved me before, because I didn't want to let go of that, of that idea that somehow I could do this myself, that idea that somehow I had some control over this, or that idea that I knew um, what I could do or that I could manage and control. And also I was terrified that I was going to gain weight 
So once I put the put the bulimia down, oh my God, I'm going to gain weight, and that's the worst thing that could happen, right? Well, uh, my husband and I were going to have a get a divorce because he was drinking and he had become the alcoholic, and I was going to leave him. And I said, "You have to get sober," and I'm leaving. And he looked at me and he said, "Then you need to stop throwing up." And I was like, "Oh shit!" Because what he had done is he had just shown me the mirror. Because I wasn't doing anything different than he was. Yeah, he was coming home drunk, and yeah, he was, you know, doing all these horrible things and almost getting arrested. But I was just as bad. I was just as high on the food, and I was just as self-harming, and I was just as harming to my family and my relationships with what I was doing. And I didn't want to look at it. So I agreed that if he was going to get sober, that was the deal, then I needed to get abstinent. And so... I ran to the rooms. Finally, after going to an outpatient, after going to intuitive eating therapist, after going to this treatment center and that treatment center and reading this book and reading that book, after doing all those things, I finally came into these rooms and I got a sponsor. And it took me about six months and I got abstinent. Um... But I had to do all of the things that I had already learned in AA, you know, and but with a different, different perspective because the credits didn't transfer all those years. The credits didn't transfer. It didn't. It didn't matter. Um, and I needed to start really being honest and stop looking at the denial that I had. So. The other part about the disease is that, for me, um, it is like an octopus. Um, There are several different tentacles. There's eight, right? My octopus might have more, and it is the disease. And the disease will take different forms. Octopus can change color. They can morph. They can get through tiny little cracks, right? They are incredibly intelligent, um, and they are masters at escape, and at getting in through things. And the way that I look at it is that my disease is an octopus, and whatever tentacle is around my throat at the time is the one that I need to address. So originally it was alcoholism, and then it became bulimia and my eating disorders. And from there I learned that there was a whole list of other issues I needed to take <laughs> take a look at, which were like the people program and you know money and all this other stuff. And what I found is that the way that my disease or the way that I look at the disease is that there's a baseline, right? It's like a flat line. And as you're getting into recovery, it's kind of jagged. Recovery is messy. It's not smooth. It's not pretty. It's not a wonderful pink cloud. Sometimes you get that, but it dissipates. And what happens is it stays flat, right? So here's your disease. It's nice and flat. And my recovery is going like this, up and down and up and down. And life happens, and I'll go down, or I'll get close to this disease, and then I'll come back up again. And then I'll go back down and get close to the disease again, and then I'll come back up again. But what happens is with this program, I get more room between myself and the disease than without. Because before, there was no separation between myself and the disease, Right? Every decision that I made was from disease thinking. Everything that I looked at, every experience that I had, came from a warped perception of reality. I actually didn't have a perception of reality. It was all fantasy. It was fantasy and these false refuges, I call them, the false refuge that when I make money, I'm going to be fine. The false refuge that when I get married, everything's going to be fantastic. 
um, that when I lose weight, it's going to be marvelous. Um, that when I get the new car, that when I get the bag, that when I get the shoes, that when I do, when, when, right? The when, the idea, that's the story, the when, right? And the other story is not enough. Not thin enough, not young enough, not tall enough, not white enough, not Mexican enough, not this enough, not you name it, it's not enough, right? And these are all the things that I've learned about myself in this disease is that I hold on to these stories, which our mind makes up, and I believe them. And because I believe them, then I have to kind of numb myself because I don't want to feel them. And they all break down to fear. Really, the root of everything for me is fear. Um, and the inability to tolerate discomfort. So in the program, what it teaches us are, are all these steps, right? These 12 steps. The first step is I am powerless over the disease. I'm powerless over the food. I'm powerless over, you know, other people's behavior. I'm powerless over all of these outside things and... Number two is, I'm a little crazy. I'm crazy to think that I have any control over any of this stuff. I'm crazy to think that my manipulation and, and kind of work with the food is going to help anything, and that I've got to get into acceptance that I don't have any control, and that I don't have to get in there and fix it. I only have to take responsibility for my own behavior. I don't have to take responsibility for anybody else's behavior or for anybody else's feelings. That's up to them and their higher power. Right Now, here comes the higher power part, too, is that I'm an atheist, so I actually don't pray to a god, um, but I do pray, and I do pray because it makes me feel better, and I also think that it changes my neural pathways. I also meditate a lot, and I did develop a meditation practice with doing the 11th step, but I actually went to a place to learn how to meditate because I thought when I sat down in the morning and I read a little bit of this and I read a little bit of that and I closed my eyes and I thought, I thought that was meditating, but that wasn't. That was thinking, and thinking is what got me here. So I had to learn how to meditate, which is learning to sit with what is, right? The feelings, the discomfort, the pain in my body, the getting older, the thoughts that come in, but not getting hooked. So here's the other thing I look at, is I look at my thoughts like a conveyor belt, right? It's like one of those conveyor belts that you see at the dry cleaners, and they have hooks, and you can, right? So every single one of those conveyor belts has a story on it, and it's up to me whether or not I'm going to get hooked by that story, dragged down the street, right? <laughs> Come back bleeding, bruised, and then wondering what the hell happened, right? Because it's up to me to decide whether or not that's true or not. And, and it's usually not true. It's usually just a thought, and, and I have to take responsibility for how I respond to that thought. So meditation gives me the cushion. It gives me the cushion from the disease, right? It gives me the cushion from believing my thoughts. It gives me the cushion from having to react. A lot of the times I react. I really, really, really try to respond. That doesn't always happen. A lot of the times I react, and I'm still working on trying to respond rather than react, and that saves a lot. Um, so that's basically the third step. The fourth step is being able to go over things, right? We always uh, we write a list of the things that we still have 
charged with feelings, right? Things that are really uncomfortable in our history or even what's going on right now. And then the fifth step is we read it to somebody else, right? Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is that I, I have a daily practice where one of those things is um, I write a gratitude list. I've been doing it for over three years with a gratitude partner. Um, I set an intention every day for what am I going to work on today. And a lot of the times that came up with um, working with uh, what they call character defects, what I call unhealthy survival skills. Um, They, you know, it says in the big book that, you know, we will become ready to have them removed. But as far as I'm concerned, if I just keep praying to have them removed, but I never do anything about it and I never address them or take a look at them, they're probably not going to move much. Right? So I have to take responsibility for going, oh my God, I'm gossiping again. Shut my mouth. You know? Or I reacted there. I need to go say I'm sorry. Or um, another sometimes unhealthy survival skill that I developed was people pleasing. I don't people please that much anymore. If I disagree with something, I'm going to say it. Right? It's really uncomfortable. There comes that tolerance again, right? There comes that tolerance to be able to sit with the discomfort of standing up for myself, right, Um, and saying something or addressing something and then letting it go. Whatever happens, happens. But if I don't say anything, then I'm going to eat over it. I don't have to take this stuff anymore, whatever the stuff is, right? I don't have to take it anymore. I can say something now. So a lot of the times it will be setting boundaries. That's super uncomfortable, right? But that's part of, for me, the sixth and seventh step is setting boundaries, learning to behave in a different way than I used to. Because if I keep doing the same thing, nothing's going to change, right? I actually have to take responsibility for doing things differently now. And people don't always respond very well to that, you know? I mean, a lot of the times there used to be me being a people pleaser or me, you know, acquiescing or being a, what did they call it? Oh, God, it was, um, oh, God, it was so funny. She's, oh, pathological accommodator. That was me. That was me. I was a pathological accommodator. Um, and now, okay, so here's the, here's the problem with some of this stuff is that sometimes, um, in the road to recovery, um, it's, it's, for me, it's finding the middle way, right? Is trying to find the middle road. And with recovery, sometimes it's a pendulum. You'll go left or right. So sometimes in setting the boundaries, I might be a little bit too aggressive. And I'll have to learn how to set boundaries more kindly, right? Or sometimes because I'm in fear and I don't want to um, set a boundary, I might food soothe a little bit. I still do that stuff. Um, My abstinence is no throwing up no matter what. I do have a, um, like a, um, what do you call it, a food, what do you call that thing? Thank you, it's a food plan. Um, A food plan, and for right now, it's no flour and no sugar. Um, 
But you can get really funky with your food without flour and sugar. There are many ways to get really sloppy with food without flour and sugar. So um, I have to be really, again, conscious about what I'm doing. When I have my sponsees do their work, there is the whole list of doing the, you know, red, light, green, light, yellow light, right? So red, nope, shouldn't touch it. Yellow, sometimes it triggers me, sometimes it doesn't. Green, never have a problem with that food, right? I try to ask my sponsees to make their green list as big as possible, bigger, way bigger than the, than the red list or the yellow list. And the other thing is, where are their behaviors, right? I have a red light, yellow light, and green light behavior list because there's many behaviors that we do that's going to lead to the food. It's not just the food. It's the behaviors. When, you know, when, with the alcoholism, I remember somebody saying, you know, well, the alcohol, it's so much easier because you can just put alcohol down and then you have to have to think about it, but I have to eat three times a day. I can guarantee you if I don't drink for three days, I'm probably going to die. You have to drink. I drink water. I drink, you know, juice. I drink whatever. Um, but that's not the way it is with the food. You know, I, I think it's just as difficult with the food as for me as it was with the drinking. Um, the problem was that I was in so much denial about the food that that's where, because it was, because my disease didn't want to let go, right? Here's that octopus thing. That octopus had me around the throat by that tentacle so hard. And I didn't want to let go of my last remaining, what I thought, coping skill. Um, because I was afraid. I was in so much fear that I wasn't going to be able to do this. And that, you know, and we don't know what we don't know. I don't know what I don't know. And, and, and I didn't know that the way that my life is now would be so incredibly full and loving and empowering. And, ah, here's the thing. My... My biggest goal a few years ago was that I wanted to be um, unapologetically authentic. I heard that somewhere. Most of the stuff that you hear that I'm saying here came from, you know, sponsors, other program people. None of this did I develop, you know. Maybe the octopus. <laughs> but pretty much everything else is like I've been taught this from my sponsors and from the program and from being around the 12-step rooms, right? Um, and so... You know, it, it, it's like I, I, recently I had to re, I really needed to take a look at my behaviors and say, okay, so where is it that I'm still using in a way that is self-harming? Where am I creating my own suffering? Most of this is self-imposed suffering. My thoughts are self-imposed suffering. My behaviors can be self-imposed suffering. Picking a fight can be, you know, self-imposed suffering. Um, opening my mouth when I should probably just say, uh-huh, maybe you're right, is self-imposed suffering because I don't always have to be right. And the other part was that I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that how much and how deep this disease can go. Um, so I was I'm earlier talking about what I do for my recovery. I, I also have another kind of visual idea, and that is that 
I look at my recovery like a faceted stone. And I'm constantly polishing the different parts of that faceted stone. So one of them is the gratitude list I talked about. Thank you. The other one is um, meditation, 20-minute meditation. The same person that I send my ma- my gratitude list, I ha- we have accountability that we recently started because I had fallen off my meditation where we um, commit to each other 20 minutes a day. Um, I have an intention that I set for the day. What is the character defect that I'm going to work on today? Or what is the thing that I'm going to, you know, the one thing that I want to focus on? It could be being kind. It could be, you know, meditation. It could be, um, oh, I don't know. It could be doing something kind for someone else and they don't know about it, right? Where, maybe taking a look at my ego, where is it that I'm seeking outside validation? That was a big one. I was really hooked on outside validation. I mean, that's pretty much why that disease came in the first place, because I didn't have enough self-validation for me not to seek outside validation. Um, Make outreach calls all the time, be of service all the time, but not at the expense of my own well-being. So there's the other thing, setting a boundary. I have to know when it's not at the expense of my own well-being. I had Lyme disease for 16 years, and there was a point where I had to, like, the most I could do was just lie in the bed, right? Um, so the other thing that I wanted to talk about was... Um, graduate intention meetings, helping others... When I took on a lot of sponsees, um, at one point my husband was telling me that he felt like I wasn't connecting with him enough because I was answering the phone all the time, right? And I think that there is a point where you can, you know, the way that I, that I sponsor people is I spend time with them on the phone pretty much every day, and then when we go through the steps, we meet each other face-to-face. I try not to do everything over, anything over the phone. I try to do it face-to-face because there is so much... Um, Lying. <laughs> I don't want to be honest either, right? I mean, our disease is like we lie, we cheat, and we steal. And I remember somebody saying at one point, like, what do you get when, you know, an alcoholic uh, horse thief gets sober? You get a sober horse thief. They're still doing the same things they were doing before. They're just not drunk. That's it. It's the same thing when I take away the food. I'm still doing the same stuff, and so are my sponsees. So I really have to be careful about that. Um, One of the meditations that I do is um, I do a loving-kindness meditation. It's usually focused on, um, unless I'm having trouble with someone, but it's usually something like, may I be happy, May I live a life of ease and comfort. May I be kind to my body. May I not harm myself with food. May I make friends with my body. Because that is the thing. It's like we have this one body. It's going to be here for our whole life. Why not make friends? Why inflict self-harm with my thoughts and the way that I look at myself when I could be more in acceptance and be like, you know, this is what we got. Why not make the best of it, you know? I am far kinder and far more easygoing with other people than I am on myself. Um, So when I think about those kinds of things and when I think about the way that I talk to myself, I also want to have that same kind of... I want to have the kindness that I have towards others. Um, I want to have that for myself. I want to speak to myself that way. I want to be compassionate. Um, And that doesn't mean 
that I'm going to be beating myself up because I had sugar-free um, cheesecake. <laughs> um, or because I had this, that, or the other thing, or because I didn't go work out, or because, what you know, whatever that is. Um, so a couple of other things. When I make a decision, is it bringing me closer to recovery or farther away? If I'm making a decision, am I getting closer to the disease or closer to recovery? Is it bringing serenity or chaos? That's what I have to look at, right? Um, I think that's almost it. A forgiveness practice, right? Forgiving myself, forgiving others. That doesn't mean condoning, right? It doesn't mean I condone anybody's behavior, but it does mean that I am acceptance and I forgive them and I'm trying not to strangle myself with a resentment, which doesn't do anything but cause me harm because they probably don't care anymore, you know? And if I can have harmony with somebody that I had difficult feelings with before, that just makes everything better. If we could all work on that, right? So higher power, my higher power, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, hopefully non-judging, you know, gratitude. That's what I look at. Change. Big one for me. Change. Everything changes. Hopefully me included. And I'm just going to close with the way that this program has profoundly changed me is that I am pretty serene now. I don't have those same four thoughts going five million times a day anymore. I don't get on the scale. I don't look at my body with disdain. I don't uh, food soothe or stuff myself and then throw it up like I used to in the alleyways. Um, I don't work out to the, to the extent where I'm causing myself an injury. Um, I'm not torturing my husband anymore with what I'm eating, what I'm not eating, what's on the diet, what's not on the diet. Um, and I can go to Thanksgiving and be present. I mean, I can be present now, which I can have full relationships with people that I couldn't before because I was so in my head with the story, whatever the story was. Um... One of the things that somebody said one time was that I live my life today so that I don't have to use tomorrow. And that's what I want to close with. Thank you. Oh, I have time for questions. Thank you. Uh, you were mentioning uh, that your husband said something about uh, kind of scaling back on fees. Yes. Um, and how did you process and kind of address it? Okay, uh, so the question is, my husband had um, commented on my scaling down on sponsees, and how did I, how did I work with that? Um, originally, I, I, didn't, I didn't work with that very well at all, because I got a lot of outside validation from having a lot of sponsees, and I really had to check my ego. Um, so uh, what I did is I, I spoke with, um, with my other sponsor, and what she said was that um, we don't sponsor at the expense of our own well-being, and when we do do that, we're not helping the other person either. And that I'm not anyone's higher power, and no one else is my higher power, and that we're all the same. It's no head higher, no head lower, right? One drunk talking to another, one... Um, you know, compulsive overeater talking to another, and so that I wasn't going to be responsible for their recovery so I could start saying no. 
I could start saying no to taking on sponsees, and that I was given a limit of five sponsees. Um, but even then, I had to cu- cut it down because I, I realized that you know a certain amount of time was talking people off the ledge, and I'm not responsible for t- talking them off the ledge, right? That they have their own higher power again, and um, so I had to just be very kind and and you know start stop raising my hand about taking on sponsees and really be very conscious about not working any harder for their recovery than they were. It's 50-50, you know? If they're not working for their recovery, I, I found myself working way too hard for their recovery, and nothing was had. It didn't help them. I was just, you know, helping them to death, basically. That's what they say in Al-Anon. I'm going to help somebody to death because they weren't taking responsibility for their own actions. Um, I hope that answered your question. Yes? You said something I thought was very cha- would be very challenging for me. Mm. And that's um, how to forgive somebody without condoning the behavior or setting yourself up to be a victim again. Yeah. How do you do this with normies? Uh, okay, so the question is, how do you forgive someone without condoning the behavior, and how do you do it with normies? That's hard. <laughs> um so what I've found is that one of the practices, one of the meditation practices that I have is, is a forgiveness practice, and I envision that person, and I say, I, please forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself. And I repeat that over and over again, envisioning them. It's kind of the same thing as like when they say, you know, pray for someone that they get everything you want, right? Not everything they deserve, because that can be, that can have a little twist to it, right? Um, but... But what happens is it softened my anger in me. I don't know that it changed anything, but it softened my um, defensiveness. It softened my uh, fear and anger around that person. I did start to make, um, I, I have learned, okay, how to make, how to set boundaries. I can say, no, that doesn't work for me, or, or, um, you know, don't talk to me that way, or I can say, and, and so, but, but the whole thing is also not making excuses and not having to explain yourself. That's, that's hard. And sitting with the discomfort, the tolerance of sitting with the discomfort without self-harming. So, um, practice. (laughs) Thank you.